Hey friends, welcome to the show. There are systems that are unjust. You know about it. Forward Radio is trying to get the voices out there to stand against those systems. Please think of going to forwardradio.org and dropping some cash for a donation. Thank you. Welcome to Critical Thinking for Everyone. Hey everybody, welcome back to our show. We are so excited to have you here, and we are so excited to bring yet another fresh new show your way. Oh yeah, it's new, and uh, we have a new guest today, and we have some fine new topics. A lot of people approach me about critical thinking. Can you believe it? In yeah, the first really? Place. It's, yeah, it's a it's a small cottage industry we're working here, but um, it's very little fame, but little. Anyway, fame nonetheless. So anyway, people approach and say, hey, how can I use critical thinking for my stuff? And whenever they ask me about that, there are always a couple of people I think of who do a nice job using critical thinking for their stuff. Yeah. And one of them is our guest today. Our guest, Judy Heitzman. Welcome, Judy. Thank you. We have worked with Judy for years, and we have always really enjoyed working with her and learning from her, and uh, she's right here from UofL, and we'd like to start out, Judy, by having you talk a little bit about what you do at UofL and what you do in the world at large. Okay. Uh, Well, let's see. And thanks for being on our show, Judy. And I have been in practice now uh, close to, well, over 30 years, going on 35 years. Wow. Um, mm. Social work, uh, clinical practice. I came to U of L as an adjunct teacher 23 and a half, I guess, years ago. Mm. And I have been teaching practice related courses since then. Um, I got a doctorate along the way during my teaching career uh, in social work practice also. And um, most of my teaching has been clinical, so it's been everything from how to work with individuals uh, one-on-one, small groups, families, to working with communities, to uh, specializations like um, Working with children and families, psychopathology, and my latest uh, class for the last several years has been using spirituality in social work. Mm, Interesting. Um, I have taught in the field of practicum sequence for about 10 years, Um, actually 15 years. It started right after Katrina for me. Um, So that means the students, primarily master's students in social work, are in. Uh, out in the community in agencies and they are applying what it is that we're hoping they learn about uh, this uh, individual small groups Mm. and community work okay so it's all social work all the time all social work all the time (laughs) (laughs) In, in the career in the career, right? Of course, not your life, right? You got you got a rich life of other things, but your your professional world is social work. That's correct. So, Judy, thanks so much for being with us today and making this time. Um, really appreciate it. Can can you talk a little bit about um, just any part of critical thinking that you think is useful? 
for your social work. Absolutely. Um, I've thought a lot about this, Brian, over the last several years. I'm bet. Yeah. <laughs> and um, one of those things is uh, it's kind of even though we have used the Paul Elder model of critical thinking at the University of Louisville, mm-hmm. I, I'm reminded of a book by Stephen Covey called Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Yes, oh, yeah. well-known book. And one of those habits is begin with the end in mind. All right. So the first standard of the critical thinking model is purpose, our, our clarity. And the first element is purpose. Very good. So, yep. Put those two together, you know, what are you doing and why are you doing it? Um, right. And I, and I think we call that thinking about your thinking. Yep. What are you doing and why are you doing it? Beautifully said. A lot of people uh, who I uh, respect have given a lot of good um energy toward that seven habits book um certainly i've also thought a good deal about it myself uh is that the is that the only critical thinking connection that you make there or are there many i don't need for you to go through them all i just wonder oh no um i like the elements of thought uh in the paul elder model because it's it's all about a deeper thinking about your thinking yeah uh, specifically a with students, we often sort of pound them with, look at your assumptions. Mm. You know, we mm-hmm. all make assumptions, look at your assumptions, and before acting on those, clarify them. Are they correct? Are they incorrect? How do you measure that? And so on. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, Judy, um, you mentioned the elements of thought. And um, and how they allow you to go deeper, and and while we love the elements of thought, a, a tool to to get into critical thinking because it's it's very straightforward. It's a great inroad into into critical thinking, as you said. Can I just say one thing too? The for the listeners, we didn't ask Judy to bring up elements of thought. Like there actually is another person out there who talks about elements of thought spontaneously, maybe even. Uh, yeah, not well, just not us. Not just us. So yeah, she even thanks dro- for that, Judy. She even dropped uh, the Paul Elder framework. Oh, which, yeah, yeah. I mean, this yeah, is, this is the, the height of nerdiness. It's, and we, yeah. we appreciate that. Yeah, you all yeah. can see Judy's part of our tribe. <laughs> I, have to, I have to tell you guys something. When this thing started way back when, when Patty first started this initiative, yep. I just thought, what is this? Critical thinking doesn't everybody. Well, I learned quickly. No, they don't. Right. Yeah, right. But I had a framework to look at that had specific things to measure. Mm -hmm. I realized, no, they don't. So you asked me a minute ago how I use it in my everyday life. And I have many examples, but I'd like to just hold on a couple. Sure. Go ahead. Go ahead. A simple one, which is, you know, how I lay out my garden. Ah. So what do I want to see? Like I laid, I planted hundreds of bulbs this fall. Yeah. And what do I want to see? Well, I want to see all the flowers. So if I put the big bulbs that have huge tall flowers in the front, guess what? Right. I won't be able to see the little flowers. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. So this is just a simple example of begin with the end in mind or what do I want to accomplish here? There right. Go. What's my what purpose? What is my goal? What is my goal? Yeah. So that Good has one. a lot to do with how I laid the bulbs out. And mm-hmm. We'll see 
how well I did, but <laughs> I see everything in the spring if the squirrels don't dig them all up because of the drought. Yeah, the, squirrel, the squirrels have their purposes too, right? They have so. different purposes. So, so Judy, Judy, let me ask you this because I am also a gardener. And I use, try to use critical thinking in my gardening. So Not too much. I mean, just, just a, a, a pinch here and there. I mean, you can't just scatter that. <laughs> oh. you know, I mean, you can't. You can't go overboard, over water with the critical thinking. <laughs> so since you mentioned that, Judy, I, I think this is such a perfect opportunity to just extend this example for just a few minutes. So you mentioned that you planted these bulbs and you want to see them in the spring, assuming the squirrels don't dig them up because of the drought. So I am also a gardener, and I use information, because remember purpose, the next thing after purpose is on the, on the elements wheel is information, right? So I try to use information to inform how the choices I make in my gardening. And I read years ago that squirrels will not dig up dandelion bulbs but they will dig up other bulbs. And so... Dandelion bulbs. Uh, not dandelion. What did I say? Daffodil. Did I say dandelion? Daffodil. Daffodil. I'm sorry. Dandelion. No. Okay. Daffodil. And so I read that years ago. So I have a bias toward only using daffodil, daffodil bulbs. And I haven't really explored. I haven't gone into some depth and breadth about other bulbs and what other rodents want them and things like that. Mm. But I just want you to know and you know like that that I also in my gardening you in in my everyday life. And so it's funny you should mention that cuz I have bulbs on my mind as well. And I and I try to be a critical thinker about those decisions. Yes. Thank you. So I guess, go ahead. No, as you were going to give another example? I was going to give another example and and I sort of started with, you know, in my what I consider the last uh, important things in the world. I think aesthetics are great, and not, that's why I planted bulbs. But the next one is, how do I choose my friends? How mm. do I choose a mate? Uh, what are the things that I look for in those per- in those people? And I think they're really important questions, and not just for me, but because I've worked with clients for 30-some-odd years, people struggle with these questions. Sure. You know, yeah. uh, what do you what is the purpose of a relationship? You know, that's a hard question. It's mm. not just to make you feel okay that you have somebody on your arm. <laughs> Maybe it is. If that's all you want, you can get that. That's, yeah. that's one shallow purpose. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, a lot of people that settle for that find later, after they're in this relationship, has invested, have invested a lot of time, energy, and money in it, that mm. they want more than that hmm. so part of the thing i'm thinking is that one needs to think more deeply about friendships and yeah. um, if you have the occasion to meet a new person hopefully you'll be a friend what are the things that are sort of red flags uh, that bothers me as opposed to things that are not red flags Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'll so, Judy, I love the example of the gardening and the friendship because in relationships, because those are both like one maybe seems sort of simple and the other one is complex, but it just goes to show you that critical thinking can inform everything in your life. Um, and, and you mentioned red flags. Have I just 
became acquainted with this concept called green flags. Are you familiar with that? I am not. Okay, I'm going to I'm going to get out my Okay, so I'm going to get out my phone if I can figure out where I set it down. Oh, never mind. <laughs> Brian's going to get out his phone. Brian's going to get, we're using the phone to call you. And I'm like looking around. Where is it? I knew where it was. Okay, okay. so look up Google green flags relationships. Green flags. And so what that is is. Is this eco-friendly relationships? No. Okay. No, so green flags. So like Judy mentioned that when you're in a relationship, sometimes you see red flags. And so Judy, let's just remind the people listening. Some red flags of relationships are what? Typically. Boundary crossings. Okay, so right. For example, I, I met a person not too long ago. Uh, I had some contact with this person. It was pleasant. And then it was a, a male person who made a comment about having not gotten close enough to kiss me yet. Well, oh, well. that's a boundary crossing. Sure. Yes. Yeah. Married, I made that clear. Uh, uh, that was a, a red flag for me. Red flag. Sure. Good, okay. good example. So, so yeah. So green boundaries. A good deal of listening, not just talking all the time. And I'm looking now. I did Google it. Green flags are waving if there's a good deal of listening, communicating, understanding going on between the two of you. And then you move forward to handle conflict and stressors and so on. So I can give another example of a friend that I've had now maybe 20 years that is also a male. But the boundaries are appropriate. The listening is mutual. The support is mutual. Um, those kinds of things make for a pleasant relationship. So thanks yeah. for introducing me to that concept of the positive versus the negative. You're you're welcome. I just was introduced to this recently, and um, I think also as a it's a, you know the idea and critical thing we have concepts right concepts. So I'm sure when you're consulting with your clients and someone is talking to you and maybe they're grappling with a relationship they have and and they mentioned someone crossed a boundary or someone's not a good listener or something and you you could introduce this concept of red flags, right? And then people can begin to not just see a relationship as this happened then that happened they have concepts to filter and understand behavior and that's again a critical thinking move right to see it conceptually and so I love recently when I read about green flags um, I sent it to a friend of mine who is um, just newly divorced and is out sort of starting to date waving flags waving flags around and she and I had just had a talk (laughs) about some red flags she encountered in uh, some dating relationships and I sent her the green flags and she loved it because Mm -hmm. as someone who's out there dating she was like wow this also the green flags give me like things to look for not just red flags to avoid right yeah well and can I say something about that too in terms of critical thinking you know you, you you put this in concepts which is rightly the case a lot of times concepts play multiple roles in critical thinking. I mean, just for example, um, and Judy, I'm not lecturing you. I'm lecturing everybody else uh, right now. So, <laughs> Everyone, uh, all the three yeah. listeners we yeah, have. Yeah, all three of our <laughs> listeners, they love this stuff they say. Um, anyway, though, I just want to point out just a functionality piece for people who are critical thinking nerds. So not, you know, like like the elements of thought themselves are all different concepts, right? So, I mean, they, they're, they're playing, yes. a, you know, a dual role right there. They're not only concept. Well, when we talk about concepts, we can, we, we can often think of them as kind of, neutral like a concept like the con- like it's just that we're we're identifying the concept it 
concepts as concepts can just be things that we're looking for just in order to locate them and see what's there. Give an example. Well, I mean, if I was looking for a purpose, um, I might not actually want to engage in the purpose. I might just want to know that the purpose was there. So that might be a concept. Or I might, I might want to figure out in a relationship if there are red flags or green flags, but it's not my relationship. It's like I'm looking at something in People magazine. So it's, I'm not really connected to it. It's just right. an academic exercise. I'm Got looking it. at them as concepts. Right. But there, what we can do, yeah, so what we can do with a lot of concepts, though, and is, is, and this is like an advanced critical thinking thing. We don't talk about this with the basic stuff, but you can take um, any uh, idea like this and turn it into a standard so that it does have a value loaded to it. So there is a positive and negative to it. So, you know, we have yeah. intellectual standards and we say, ah, is it, is it accurate or not? Is it you know, to what degree is it precise? Is it relevant right. or not? So this could be like, like, is it a green flag or not? Or is it a red flag or not? That would, that's a concept, but we're actually using it as a standard. Right. And, and this is important because as thinkers, we create our own standards all the time in social work and everything else. And we should be explicit about how we do that, right? And one thing we can do is we can take concepts that we don't really have value attachment to, and we can turn them into qualitative standards such that we say, if it's a green flag, it's automatically higher quality than a red flag or something like that. Huh. Interesting. Well, and the other thing you said in that little uh, summary, Brian, is that when it's turned into a standard or how it's turned into is it's value-laden. Mm-hmm, right. And that's, that's what struck me about the next example that I had was about voting. Uh, oh, I voting. Vote? I thought you said voting. She might like I voting, said, too. Voting or voting? She said voting. Vote, like V-O-T-E at the poll. Don't go, be a, go don't be a troll. Okay. Go for it. And what I was going to say is in 2016, I heard many people say, well, I voted because I wanted a change. And my question was, a change for what? A change to what? It's a fine question. And um, I think now that we have uh, what we have... <laughs> That's frightening. <laughs> yeah, so, absolutely the case. So I, yeah. I, feel like, I feel like this election, the commentaries that I'm hearing, uh, not just news media, but 
you know, community conversations have been more clear about the necessity for not only clarity, but purpose and what direction you want to actually go. Because there are many directions. Sure, <laughs> definitely. Off the cliff is one, to the moon is one. <laughs> Where are we trying to go? Right. <laughs> As a community, you know. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah I like that idea, too, about you know, having a standard of some kind of, um, you know, community service. Like, it seems like we would want that kind of orientation um, for public well, service, right? when we've had a pandemic, yeah. uh, it, it turns out that if community well-being is not on the top of the list, that a lot of people can suffer. Well, that's yeah. right, yeah. Um, so, again, I'm speaking for my individual values, but community well-being and connectedness that we are not we humans don't live in isolation well right point in fact now that we've been isolated for seven months mental health problems are skyrocketing yes mm-hmm. so we um, are communal and so just to have those things in thought go ahead absolutely uh so judy i'm curious like um when you first got involved with this critical thing initiative that that you mentioned that Brian and I and you and a bunch of our U of L colleagues have been involved in for many years, what was the most like? What was your biggest aha moment? Uh, as I would say for you as a thinker, and then and then how did that translate into your show up in your teaching of of social work? Well, I'm not sure it answers that question, but I do have an answer. And that is my biggest aha moment was when I saw papers. I had students use, uh, choose three elements of thought when they would write any kind of uh, deeper thinking paper. And when they talked about purpose first and goals first, and then delved into information and assumptions and implications and those kinds of things, the papers were so much richer. Hmm. And before using these kinds of uh, specifics, concepts for them to break down and integrate into their thought, a lot of them were rambling. <laughs> or they were radically over-quoting, you know, like every other sentence was a quote kind of thing. Sure. But there okay. was integration. Right. Of thought, and that's the part that has really hooked me. That oh. this really works. And then the other thing was, I learned early at one of my Delphi training things how important. And maybe it was Gerald Nosich that said, "Use the language." Yes. Use yes. the language of critical thinking. Mm-hmm. Talk about fundamental and powerful concepts. Talk about purpose. Talk about assumptions. Talk about implications. And having done that, the papers are just so much richer, so much more thought-provoking, and it's very clear the students have integrated uh, some of the goals that we hoped for the course when Mm. they write their papers. That's great. Well, that's exciting, isn't it? That is exciting. It is exciting. Well... Um, I 
want to say thank you to you for taking the time to come to the trainings and the conversations and being willing as someone who has been in your field a long time, who was willing to say, hey, I'm, I'm going to check this out. I'm going to spend time on my thinking and my teaching. And I'm, it makes me, it's very gratifying to hear that it, it really was uh, paid off for you and the students. And um, uh, so I'm, I love to hear, I love hearing that. Oh, yeah, me too. Um, oh, me too. <laughs> I'll bet. That is good. That is good feedback, isn't it? Um, I wanted to ask, uh, you know, you, you mentioned before about character a little bit, like some of the some of the points you were making about um, individual values made yes. me think about intellectual traits, you know, those um, those habits of thinking, intellectual yeah. humility, etc. What what do you think about the value of um, not just I mean you mentioned you mentioned sort of moral traits um, I guess I mean you didn't put intellectual on the front of them let me say that um, you know what do you think about intellectual habits as opposed to those sort of more moral habits like you know intellectual humility versus humility intellectual courage as opposed to courage you know those kinds of things I mean do you think that there's a do you think that there's a place in conversations about, um, you know, individual character development to talk about intellectual habits? Um, Absolutely. Yeah, what do you, um, go ahead. Well, let me just um, stay with one that we've used often in uh, training therapists. Oh, <laughs> social workers. that'll be interesting. And that, is, and that is one of intellectual humility hmm. that... Um, one of the big payoffs for me having taught a while was at one point I, I taught two sequences in a row. So uh, in a two-year program, I had students from semester one through semester four. And what I ended up seeing was they would sometimes come in thinking they were ready to know everything. Yeah. And they would go out ready to know that they didn't. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> And that's intellectual humility yep. to uh, approach a client's life because as they are the expert and not we are the expert. Mm -hmm. So right. on occasion, uh, I get clients who say things like, well, you're the expert. Tell us what to do. And I'm like, well, I'm the expert on I have some great questions, but you're the expert on your life. Yeah. Oh. yeah. I've only known you for 10 minutes. I really yeah, I, I so, appreciate your uh, confidence, but I in, really couldn't. In this field, in my field, intellectual humility is really important um, just because without it, malpractice is a real possibility. Oh, no um, doubt. And I often had a story, which I won't go into, but bottom line, uh, a true story where a woman went in to see someone after a horrible trauma. And when she told the therapist the trauma, he said to her, some people have real things and some people have imagined things and you have imagined things. Oh, wow. Why wow. he came up with that, I have no idea. <laughs> what a thing to but say. It was, it was a second trauma. Yeah. Oh, oh wow. No, no kidding. I can't imagine so a therapist that, saying that to me. That's malpractice. That wow. To not have intellectual humility and know that we can't possibly know every scenario right. that every person who walks in our office has experienced. Yeah. It's, how could we not know that? Well, and, and, and <laughs> yeah, and well, and and people who walk in, they're already vulnerable. I mean, that's that's why they're there. 
um, in a great many cases, right. right? Some kind of vulnerability. So to take Correct. that to take that kind of angle, I guess I can see maybe a hard love angle, but it just doesn't strike me as very productive if someone well, really that's is. The first day. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's wow. That is super hard love. So Judy, I have a f- <laughs> I have a follow up question for you. So, as you know, as critical as human beings, we all have a tendency to be egocentric, right? We, our tendency, we have natural built-in biases. Well, we come that way. Yeah, we, we come. We have a tendency all our lives. Okay. Actually, thank you for helping me be more precise. We as human beings, <clears throat> right, there's a, uh, a kind of these built-in biases that can lead us without, if they're not being checked, if we're not checking our own biases or aware of them or sort of reining them in, we can go through life like, oh, my point of view is truth with a capital T. I know everything I need to know. I'm an expert on, right? We can, we can, so I first want to just acknowledge to to everyone out there that is a principle of critical thinking is that we have these built-in biases that that, that can trip us up as thinkers if we're yeah. not correcting. So so intellectual arrogance and feeling like I know everything, that that's a that's a bias. And so my question is when you want to cultivate in your students intellectual humility and you want to teach them how to, because think about it, if I sit down with a new client and I say to myself, oh, I'm going to be intellectually humble here, right? Like it's one thing to just know I should be, and it's another thing to make a mental shift Mm -hmm. and stay there so that I'm being intellectually humble. So my question is, how do you model, how do you coach, how do you support students in actually making that shift so, so they may know about it, but how do you actually help them do it mentally? Well, I don't think I have one answer for that. Um, I'm thinking of a couple examples. Most students in grad school that I've had over time, as they get closer to the end, they have imposter syndrome. You know, like, I know I don't know enough. I'm not ready. But the extreme other side would be, I know everything. And so uh, a lot of what we do, or a lot of what I did in those clinical classes would be role plays in the classroom so that they feel the hot seat that they're in. Oh, yeah. Okay. (laughs) And they have to respond, even if it's a small group in the class, they have to respond in a role play on the spur of the moment. So the art of therapy is being able to apply the science in the moment. Yeah. In the context, right now, without any book, without any research, without anything. And you, you do role plays in the classroom? Oh, I used to do. For the clinical class, I did tons of those. And and how did those work? I mean, did they work well? Oh yeah, that was the things the student likes. The the students tended to like the most because they got the actual experience of applying what they were learning and in real all, time. We are social work professions, so we do things. Yeah, we don't yeah. just. We're not all researchers. Well, we, certainly it's a big part, but the majority of social workers are practitioners. They work with people. They're in situations that are live. Yeah. And they have to be able to think on their feet. Right. Well, right. Um, 
practicing that in the classroom where people feel like they're bungling idiots, you know, sometimes it would say that. <laughs> would say, well, it's better to make your mistake here. Yeah. We can, um, you know, talk about it, break it down. You can maybe have some lessons. Think about things you would do differently because you don't get that experience when you're in actually in practice. Right, you know? right. Sounds incredibly and, valuable. I think so. And also, if, if you think about the opposite, which would be intellectual arrogance, it, uh, intellectual arrogance can really lead to malpractice. It's like intellectual arrogance is where somebody says you have imagined problems without that being the case. So it's, it's a great way to avoid doing something harmful. After all, our first rule is do no harm. Oh, sure. I mean, we're a helping profession. We're right. not a control profession. We're supposed to, like, tell everybody the way they're supposed to be. Right. <laughs> yeah. Although, although that's, that's what, what although that's what a lot of the people want. Well, if they want that, then you know that gives me some information to start with. You know, where <laughs> you get the idea that someone else would tell you how to be. Right. Right. Ah. Responsible to live your life and so on. Interesting. You, know? you got to pull back the layers. Right. Right. So, what sort of um, what sort of application do you see in the broader public sphere? I mean, we're talking about social work. We're talking about personal thinking. Um, you know, in the critical uh, think in the critical thinking system that we've studied, they have this idea of um, you know critical societies. Like you try to build a a critical mass of these thinkers in order to maybe affect some kind of broad-scale social change in terms of better thinking? I mean, do you have any thoughts about that? Is that kind of thing needed, or should we just really I focus totally individually? I about that, Brian. Are you reading my mind? <laughs> <laughs> I have your notes. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, you don't. I'm giving that my notes. <laughs> well, go ahead then. Yeah, uh, please. I was going to say, I think personally and professionally, I don't think we can go forward as a culture until we deal with racism in the United States. Oh, yeah. It's so embedded in our culture that we don't even see it. Um, I'm so tired of people saying, white privilege, I grew up poor. And that's not the point. Okay, that's not the point. The point is your color didn't cause you any more limitations. Right. To not understand that is difficult. I think at this point, after the uh, the racism that and all the concerns that have been raised since the Breonna Taylor killing in Louisville, right, and um, the George Floyd killing, and so on and so on, yep. um, to not see this is just blind. And it, first of all, uh, killings by police it does such harm to good police officers mm. not to address yeah. the ones who are acting out of racial fear or whatever their trigger is but um, we have to address this so you know I had a conversation with several people last week about what can white people do to help eliminate racism and I heard everything from I, I asked about 20 people I know that are friends of people of color and I did that because I'm a firm believer that when a group is oppressed their voice is really important in the resolution of the problem. Of course, yes. Right and I heard everything from 
thank you for asking. Most people don't. I know your heart and you're, you know, you'll always be my sister, blah, blah, blah. Two, have you ever thought that when you ask people of color about racism, it triggers trauma in them? No, I hadn't. Hmm. Okay. Even though I've studied trauma, worked with trauma, no, I hadn't. So um, there's a range of things. Uh, one of the things that I, I learned is it's not that black or brown people or people of color don't want to be asked. It's that they're tired of being asked and mm-hmm. nothing happens. Mm-hmm. Okay. They've answered these questions until they're sick of it. And white people need to ask now, what are we doing to continue to benefit from white privilege? How do we play into that? And that's a much bigger question. You know, we have to talk about intellectual humility. We have yeah. to open our hearts to the fact that that may be the case, that we benefit from someone else's suffering. Sure. And that is a painful thing to face. So, um, so that, and, so, yeah. But it's a big question, and it's the biggest question in my mind in our culture as we live it today is, until we deal with this, this business of white privilege, I don't think we're going to really be a community hmm. that helps one another hmm. and supports one another. Now, I'm saying that in very absolute terms. Let me say clearly that there are many, many, many pockets in our society that do that already. But the dominant white male privilege is still glaring and, uh, you know, looking at things like income and so on, job so, opportunities. So that made me, as you were talking, it made me think about another critical thinking principle around point of view and uh-huh. um, being able to learn that you have a point of view and it's a limited one and that right. part of what being a critical thinker is you're actively seeking and trying to situate yourself in the point of view of other people. Um, and so I was, I guess you gave a great example of asking other people about their life experiences and to help inform yours and realizing the, the complexities of of something like white, white privilege and your own perspective, which is so comfortable to you, right. That you've lived in for so many years or decades. And then you realize, I've evolved in. I yeah. can't say that I would have said the same thing 50 years ago. For sure not. Right. That so. you've this you've evolved in and in, in that yeah. yeah. So I guess my question is similar to like how do you use the concept of point of view um, in your teaching of social work or in your practice of like do you really do you really lean into the idea of point of view when you're working with students? Actually, that's a great question because the answer is not only yes, but it was one of my favorite icebreakers in a a class. Uh, One of the things that I I used to tell, do this one uh, icebreaker uh, exercise where, you know, most grad students are over 21. Mm -hmm. Most of them are. So I would ask them to describe how they spent their 21st birthday. Mm -hmm. Now, there was always, because of Louisville, Kentucky, there was always at least one student who did the Bambi walk. 
Oh, oh sure. really? <laughs> of the course. Bambi walk. We'll yeah. have to tell uh, people what that is. For listeners who don't know what the Bambi walk is, the Bambi, there's a Bambi bar on Bardstown Road, which is kind of a main drag in Louisville, in the Highlands, which is kind of a, you know what, a funky, how would you describe the Highlands? Uh, <laughs> I like funky. Funky. Yeah, I like funky. Anyway. Yeah. There are multiple bars between the Bambi Bar and I think it's uh, Grinstead Drive. And oh, it's all the way down Bay, to, yeah. You can walk down and get a free drink at each bar, blah, blah, mm-hmm. blah. So, yeah. Bambi Walk. Quite so, far. that was one that would almost always come up. But other things that came up surprised people. It's like there was this sort of assumption that everybody had a great 21st birthday. <laughs> And there was always at least one person in the class who had a tragedy on their 21st birthday, or a trauma on their 21st birthday, Mm. or a loss on their 21st birthday. Mm. And that was always shocking to the class. Really? Our point of view might be that certain rites of passage, it's 21st birthday is one of them, are celebratory. And yes, and sometimes they can be wonderful and Holy hell in the other hand. That's know? right, yeah, yeah. At the same time, I used to start with that so that students could, you know, sort of, it was usually a sort of a knee-jerk response that, what? You know, hmm. they had no idea that anybody would ever have a bad experience on a rite of passage day. That's but, really huh. interesting, wow. too. Yeah. That's interesting. I love I love the idea of using the concept of rite of passage or things that are very sort of maybe common denominators or tip, typically common denominators like when you left home or when sure. you had to your first day of high school or right oh, like big one is what are you supposed to eat on Thanksgiving? <laughs> oh really? People have very strong they sure do. Added perspectives of what's the correct really? thing to eat on Thanksgiving because yeah. families have traditions around that meal. Oh. And, you know, if somebody goes to the family gathering and there's no sweet potatoes, they just about have a milk bill. What in the world are we doing here? It's what the pilgrims ate. You know, Judy, what's so that's so interesting you should say that because the first time I had to spend a major holiday with my husband's family... I was shocked at how I was shocked at how I had all these built in assumptions about what we do or don't do or what we eat or don't eat or how we celebrate that I was just so much part of my growing up and my life that I didn't I didn't you know, I didn't see it as this is what we do. This is just how you do it. What is correct. And so frame of reference or perspective uh-huh. often get, gets rolled into correctness, which is yeah. that this is a huge leap, maybe, and maybe not. My, my concern about our culture is the divided, polarized nature mm. of, of our government right now, that there is no across the aisle, unless it's, I'm going to tell you across the aisle, I'm going to work to get rid of you. There is that. There's no meaning of the minds. And, you know, we're we're all supposed to have the same basic idea of, well, it's laid out in the preamble, you know, whatever. (laughs) Uh, Whatever that is. Whatever. I mean, I can tell you what it is. I'm sure you can, too. (laughs) Right, right, Uh, right. 
but we've lost that common uh, denominator, and I'd like to see us be able to do that. And your, to your point, Patty, point of view, understanding that there's another point of view that may have some value. Did you eat something at that first Thanksgiving that you had never tasted and ended up liking, for example? Um. That is an example. That's not what happened to me, but that is an example. <laughs> so that's a thing that happened. But what it taught, what it did teach me, though, Judy, is that okay. So interesting that you should ask that, because when we put so much emphasis on the food, what is it that we miss? We miss that the point is that we're gathering together with family, right? But some people would say the food is intrinsically part of that gathering, well, right? And, well, and it strikes. Oh, absolutely, depends yeah. on the family. But absolutely. yeah, yeah, it, it strikes. It strikes me that that's a certain kind of privilege to be able to focus on the food, right? To be able really? to focus on consistency, to be able to have the tradition, to be able to have the means to do that, to be able to uh, well, set, to, to to organize your life in such a way. I mean, that's well, uh, and also the fact that. Uh, if you look at the food, now we're back to the racism issue of chitlins, for example. Oh, yes. Why are African Americans liking chitlins? Because that's what they've had for generations, and that's because they couldn't get anything else. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. They got the, you know, the internal organs. That's right. all that was left mm -hmm. to eat. Right. Hmm. You know, so how culture is built is also <laughs> shapes who we are over time, which is kind of another piece of... I don't know um, whether it's bias or oppression or whatever. Yeah, well, I mean, it's definitely it's definitely part of our bias, right? Right. Um, because right. yeah, we end up deciding about these things. You know, we end up we end up making decisions based upon uh, what we've known, what's um, what's correct to us. Now, now I have a funny story about outside point of, uh, of being able to look at a different point of view. I went to a, a Thanksgiving gathering last year, and the, and the people had a pet pig. Okay. And the, the dinner was both ham and turkey. And at one point, uh, a gentleman fed ham to the pig and said, they like pig. They like <laughs> <ham>. <laughs> Don't. It just, I just laughed so hard. First of all, I've never been to a Thanksgiving dinner with a pig. <laughs> Second of all, I normally don't eat ham on Thanksgiving, although I like it. Sure. And I've never seen a pig eat ham. So, like, okay, cannibal pig. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> all around. This is bizarre, but, you know, uh, what was wrong with that, really? Nothing. It was just a different experience than what I'd had before. Oh, sure. I mean, everybody's, yeah, those different cultural <laughs> traditions funny. can, yeah, absolutely. They'll sure, they'll surely throw uh, uh, the works into things for us, I'll tell you. Um, yeah, I, so um, Patty had to step away for a second, so I'm just going to um, go ahead and, and fill in for her. She had a couple of questions. Um, I wonder, but I wonder, I'll wait, I'm, hopefully she'll get back and join us. Um, I just wondered... Uh, if you could tell us a little bit about why social work became your thing. I don't know if you mentioned that at the beginning. I don't know that I did. Yeah. Well, first of all, it's my second career. Oh. Um, or really third, I guess. Okay. As a young person, I loved music and was very good at it. Uh, 
uh, singing. I kind of had a natural propensity for keyboard, and my grandmother played by ear, never read music, and was very talented in, in the arts. Um, I studied music in high school. I performed a lot. I studied music in college. In the beginning of my college career, I left college because I got married early. Oh, okay, okay. School when I was like 19. And so that changed the direct to, uh, trajectory of my life. And yeah, absolutely. So I Congratulations. I working wherever I could get a job with a year and a half of school, and I ended up working in a bank. Okay. And I did very well. I mean, I kind of climbed the ladder, so to speak, as well as women could do in a bank in, the, in those days. <laughs> and uh, I, uh, at one point, got uh, recruited to a bank in Chicago. I got like a 65% increase in pay, and so I took it. Wow, good yeah. for you. And I went up there, and I had liked my work pretty well in Louisville. Um, I've always liked math and done well in math, and there's a lot of math and banking and so on. And, and it was an investment department. I didn't even know the word when I first went there. Um, <laughs> I grew up in a sort of middle-class family, um, uh, hard-working parents, so we had a, a large number of children, so investment was not something that was on my list. <laughs> gotcha. Mm-hmm. What was on my list was generosity and sharing. And my father was very involved in a Catholic organization called Saints de Paul, which at the time, it was this, like a secret society. I didn't know what it was. Well, it wasn't secret. It was confidential. It was about helping people who were in dire need. And when I was in the eighth grade, I went with him to deliver Christmas presents to a family that had eight children. Well, our family had eight children. Yeah. Their family lived in a shack, uh, like a two-room shack, and, you know, potholes all over the roads. It was just complete. It was Appalachian poverty in Pleasure Ridge Park where we lived, not more than two miles from us. Wow. I was stunned. And I was so, I guess I just never lost that sense of uh, how come we have, uh, we were not rich by any stretch, but our parents were uh, generous and they were full of integrity. If they believed in something, they did it and that was it. And there was no going back. In other words, they didn't not pay their bills and then go out and party. They paid their bills and then if they had money left, they would have to party. And meanwhile, we partied at home, whatever. Yeah, sure. Uh, <laughs> their values were such that I was... Uh, Easily, I easily adopted those as my own. I thought the integrity is something that I've always liked. And the sense of disproportionate poverty, uh, um, then when I worked in the bank and I, I went to banking school and I took economics and I learned about capitalism, how it really creates a poor class. Ah, yep. You can't the ladder without somebody being at the bottom. I mean, I, when I got to Chicago, I had this job where I made lots of money in investments, and I watched greed at a level I'd never seen it. <laughs> and I just had some kind of a maybe personal or ethical crisis saying, 
when my life ends, is this what I want to look back on? Right. Oh, no. So, Absolutely not. So you... Um, so I came back to school. I had never finished college, uh, even an undergrad, and in 1984. I saved my money for the year and a half I lived in Chicago and came back to Louisville in 84. And I got an undergrad and a graduate degree. And now, my undergrad is in educational psychology and counseling. Oh. Which is what I thought I wanted to do. But then when I found social work masters, and I only actually went there because the master's degree in ed psych and counseling was um, almost a duplicate of the undergraduate degree. I'm like, well, what do I want to do that for? Hmm. So, <laughs> Good critical thinking. Work, though, I, I knew I was home. Hmm. Oh, you okay. knew? Uh, looking at things like the feminization of poverty oh. and how capitalism creates poverty and how resources are so disproportionately distributed and if you look at you know the income disparities in 1935 versus now there was a curve now there's a flat line and then a spike at the end where the one percent are like miles above everybody else yeah those kinds of things just motivated me i just wanted to spend my life doing something that i felt like um Made, a, made the world a better place. Well, that's absolutely uh, important work, and that's uh, fascinating knowing that you came from that um, sort of one percenter employment background, right? I mean, you really had the chance to uh, to climb into something um, totally different. Yeah, and and maybe maybe be an integral part of the problem in some ways, huh? <laughs> well, I can tell you that there was an office at U of L in 1984 when I came back here to go to school called Transitions. I was 34 at the time, and it was for women, or particularly women, over 25 that were going back to school, hmm. finished the group. Sure. And when I went back there, this woman heard my story, too. Are you kidding? Ah, I thought so, yeah. Banking to social <laughs> work? or what? Well, just, just why aren't you still up there doing that, I bet. <laughs> but the other part of the story that was interesting is when I got into social work, I'm not the only person who made that transition. Mm. There are a lot of people in social work who did corporate America for a while, and they just found themselves in this bankrupt um, communal place. Mm. Now, I'm not saying all corporations are that way, because that's right. not the case. Right. But again, it's the structure of a capitalist society that creates poverty. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So we can pass out all kinds of goodies at Christmas, but the rest of the year. Right. Right. <laughs> so, you know, I'm probably sounding like I'm not a capitalist at heart, as you can tell. <laughs> oh, I don't know. I mean, you can you can Maybe be. a bad match for me. Well, and, you can be. Was, you can be a capitalist and still hate the uh, the externalities that come along with it. That's for sure. And try to work against well, them. Me because I'm still working and making money. So. Right. Right. I mean, we all are. Right. But. Well, Judy, we, we only have a few minutes left, um, but I really enjoyed hearing about your life journey and about, and I'm so thankful for all the years and the service you've given to L and to students and to the community. It's, it's really wonderful. Thank you for all that you've done. Judy and I got to do a presentation once on critical thinking for her social work faculty colleagues, and that was a lot of fun. And one of the things I'll take away from that, Judy, is, again, how what you just said is how you 
really use the elements to really get students to think deeply. And it's so simple and so profound. And so um, that's just a, it's just a wonderful example. So thank you. You're welcome. It dawned on me as you said that, Patty, that even though I hadn't been introduced to the Paul Elder model, mm-hmm. that a lot of my transitioning career was elements of thought related. Oh, yeah, implicitly, you know, right? Asking deep questions of myself, like, where is this going? What is the outcome of this life path going to be for mm-hmm. me? That's my purpose. And I did not like where it was going. So luckily I had the benefit, and I guess... The irony is, because I made so much money in Chicago, I had the benefit of saving it so I could go back to school and nice. change the path of my life. Right. <laughs> and a lot of people don't have that advantage. That is that is a fortunate thing. I want to end up by asking you to go back to something you mentioned before. You mentioned um, racial inequality, um, Black Lives Matter. We've certainly <laughs> talked about it on the show. I just wanted to give you maybe... Uh, a couple of minutes if you want them, or maybe even just one minute to say anything important um, in regard to uh, Black Lives Matter protests that we've been having here in Louisville and elsewhere, maybe. This is a, an example I read from a colleague who is actually a high school teacher. Um, he actually wrote an editorial a while back to the Courier Journal about this. Like when people say all lives matter, well, of course, all lives matter. But if your arm is broken, you don't say, well, my eye matters. <laughs> of course, my eye matters. Sure. But your arm is in trouble right now. Right. Mm. Your arm is suffering. Right. Your arm is broken. The system that fixes your arm has to be fixed so that you can be whole again. Yeah. And I like well that said. analogy. It's not that white lives don't matter. All lives, of course, matter. But black lives if they've mattered for 400 years, we wouldn't be in this mess. It's because they didn't matter. Mm. And how they don't matter now is not too far from what's been going on for 400 years. It's just a little more under the radar. Mm. Well said. Well, thank you well for that. Said. Thank you. I yeah. hope that we can, you know, look at us as a human family and stop differentiating in that color of our skin. Yeah, we all hope that for sure. We've um, we've talked a lot about the critical thinking implications of these issues here on the show, and I uh, really appreciate you um, expanding on some of those and um, and echoing some of those here. And and really, thanks for all of the really cool content, both personally and professionally, that you provided today. So we are at well, the thank end. Thank you, but... Brian. Thank you, Patty. It's been a delight talking oh. to you. As Too bad I can't be there in person, but well, hopefully yeah. be over someday. Yes, <laughs> yeah. we do hope that. <laughs> We're planning on that. Yeah. We are. We are. Okay. Thank you, and uh, and have a great weekend. Thank you so much. Take care, Judy. Thanks, Judy. Have a good time. Okay, right. thank you. Bye. And as you know, as we end the show, my friends, deep thinkers, it's absolutely time to go and critical thinking's for everyone even you